for me, certainly movies are the highest kind of version of visual narrative storytelling, which is not to say that I in any way look down on or denigrate, you know, television as a medium or streaming as a way of consuming stories. You know, I was forged in the fire of cinema and I remain a loyal acolyte. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. And in this week's episode, we're going to be reviewing the highlights from a record-setting opening weekend of the Super Mario Brothers movie, the animated title from Illumination and Universal Pictures that is kicking off the second quarter of 2023 Great news for Universal and for a number of major exhibition chains. Rebecca Polly will be going over those records shortly. And in our feature segment, I'll be speaking to Stephen Williams and Stephanie Robinson, the director and screenwriter, respectively, of the upcoming 20th Century Studios film Chevalier, coming out on April 21st. They're joining us here a week before that movie's premiere. A very interesting title coming up in theaters, and we'll be going over everything. All the effort that it took to bring that story up to the big screen. That's coming up in our feature segment. But let's get right into it. Rebecca, welcome back. I hope you had a good weekend. I hope you have a great weekend coming up, because I know Exhibition certainly did. Let's start the way we always start. What did you watch? Uh, last weekend, I actually just rewatched Nope, which is a movie that I've rewatched a couple times. It's really held up for me on repeat viewings. Sunday, I went out to a Mets game, which is why my face looks very sunburned and red. And I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> talk about the Mets performance. You know, I don't need to go into that. But no, City Field did like introduce their huge, gigantic, huge new Samsung LED screen, and that thing looks nuts. Oh, man. For those of you in the audience that have seen Samsung's LED video wall technology for cinemas, it's DCI certified. It's also like really impressive. I think that that LED conversation, you mentioned it at stadiums being part of this like massive upgrade in the going to sports experience. When it breaks through in cinemas at the right price point, I think it'll be a very compelling new piece of technology. So Daniel, how about you? Big holiday weekend, a lot of people going to the movies. What did you get out to see? Anything? I had to do holiday weekend travel. I was actually down in Washington, D.C. The train ride down, what did I catch? I caught uh, Crisscross, the film noir directed by Robert Siodmak with Burt Lancaster in a starring role, 1949. Wonderful, wonderful movie. Highly recommended. You can catch that streaming on the Criterion channel. One of my favorite noirs after my first viewing. Really, really recommend it. But, you know, actually, I thought of you, Rebecca, because as we talk about this crime genre, I have more travel coming up this coming weekend. I'm going down to Austin, Texas to visit my sister and my niece. And lo and behold, the Austin Film Society, which is walking distance from their house, is screening Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, that 2003 Ooh. film. I know you love that title. That's a I'm not a huge Bong Joon-ho fan, but you like this movie so much that I already bought my ticket. I bought my <laughs> plane ticket, and then I bought my movie ticket. I'll be checking that out next Monday. I hope you like it. I, I think you will. I know you're, you, you like Zodiac, right? And it definitely kind of has those... You'll see. I don't want to say anything about it, but I think... I mean, who doesn't love Zodiac, right? The worst thing you can say about Zodiac is that David Fincher will never make a better movie. 
just because that one's so good. So I am looking forward to making my way back to the movies, even if it's for a repertory title. But let's start here on the box office discussion with first run movies, Rebecca. It was a record setting weekend with a Super Mario Brothers movie. I mean, dang, you said this movie was going to absolutely definitely crossed 300 million and it got two thirds of the way there just on its <laughs> opening weekend with a 146.3 million over three day and 204.6 over the five day weekend. I mean, already breaking all kinds of records. Yeah. And that's domestic only. You look at the global figures here, 377 million from 70 markets an incredible start here at the box office. Audiences seem to love this title, a 96% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. That means word of mouth is great. Not too much competition on the animated film front either. Let's go over some of the big picture benchmarks here for this title, Rebecca, because I know this is the biggest animated opening of all time for a film. It actually came in ahead of Frozen 2's 358 million. What else do we have to say for this title? I mean, it's already the biggest grossing video game movie of all time at this point, right? Even though it's only been out for that one extended weekend. In terms of individual circuits, AMC and Cinemark both reported that largely on the strength of Super Mario Brothers, so obviously holdovers are, are a factor as well. This past Saturday was their biggest day in terms of like attendance since they came back from the pandemic. Records are going wild there and it's great to see. And we have to say this to really hammer this home. We've had three of the highest grossing movies of all time come out since that period. Top Gun Maverick, Avatar Way of Water, Super Mario Brothers came in and at Cinemark and AMC set new attendance records, even coming after those movies. It's incredible. This is something that we were predicting and, you know, everyone in the entire industry basically was predicting that it was going to make a ton of money. But I don't, I mean, this is, is a number that I don't, think a lot of people would have dared to hope for. An interesting thing that we got from AMC is that they set an all-time high for revenue during an Easter weekend. And they had a little like collectible popcorn tin for Mario that was their highest selling collectible item ever. I think I saw this. It's, I think, a popcorn tin that is one of those little blocks that Mario punches. Oh, with a question mark. stars and turtles with a question mark. That's the one I saw online. That looks awesome. That's like a really good mm -hmm. shout to come in there with an in-theater marketing experience yeah. like that. I'd buy that. I didn't see the movie. Yeah, the D&D one that was a D20. I don't, they're on a roll with collectible popcorn tins over at AMC and, and definitely moviegoers seem to think so. IMAX as well had a really... Uh, great opening weekend run for Super Mario Brothers. They delivered the highest animated IMAX opening weekend of all time, speaking globally. And if you look at kind of the macro view, what you were talking about, about how we've had so many kind of really splashy, high popularity, high grossing films, 2023 for IMAX has given them their best ever opening for an animated film, for a sports movie, and for a local language release. And it's equal. Like, it's nuts. Incredible. Their first quarter, they had they set a record. Their first quarter of this year set a record for the biggest quarter of all time for them. And if you think back to what we were speaking about in January with kind of looking forward to 2023, Q1 was like, the, this is slow. Let's just got to get through this quarter. <laughs> yeah, no, it's incredible the numbers that we're seeing now in a bounce back. And beyond IMAX PLF screenings, you look at that macro picture domestically, Rebecca, 
Super Mario Brothers movie coming in and recording the biggest five-day opening from Wednesday to Sunday of all time, surpassing the Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, which had previously come in at 200 million. Of course, we mentioned at the start, Mario Brothers coming in with 204.6, just numbers that I don't think any of us expected. The demographics behind it here really varied. A diverse audience yeah. coming in and supporting this title. I had to do kind of a double take with it because it's the one instance I think with this movie where it's a lower number than I expected. Only 16% of that opening weekend gross for ages 12 and under. The nostalgia play they were going for was definitely worked out for them a lot. And it makes you think that the holds have got to be great. I mean, if word of mouth continues to be strong, families who maybe, you know, were traveling for the holidays or had other things to do this weekend. Every review that I've read about this title points out that this is a very audience, family-friendly movie. If that 12 and Under demo didn't come out in huge numbers this time around, absolutely, Rebecca. I think the word of mouth is going to help this movie just push that sector of the audience in subsequent weeks. We look at the demographic groups here, Hispanic audiences once again over-indexing. They're actually the biggest group, ethnic group, Coming to see this movie, leading the pack with 40% of ticket buyers over opening weekend. Caucasian white audiences in second place with 30%, followed by African-American 14% and Asian audiences with 10%. A nice mix of audiences coming to this movie. We talk about the elusive cross-quadrant family title. We finally have it here. Lo and behold, not a Disney movie. This movie coming in from Universal and Illumination. Today, and this isn't, I think, a hot take, we have to look at the numbers, Illumination and Universal, that partnership today has to be the reference leading partnership theatrically for animated family films. Disney has a lot of work to do to reclaim that title. Globally, this movie was not a slacker either. It was breaking all sorts of records in varied markets and varied continents. Daniel, what's the global story that we're looking at here? Well, we've got a handful of markets coming in with over $10 million since opening on Wednesday. Let's start with the top market here, Mexico. We know that family films in Mexico always lead the box office. The downturn in the availability of those titles has really been preventing the Mexican market to perform the way it had pre-pandemic. Finally, with a movie like this, we have a $27.4 million opening weekend for the Super Mario Brothers movie there, the highest out of all of the overseas markets that opened this weekend, and the third biggest opening weekend of all time in the Mexican market. The second place here is the UK and Ireland coming in with nearly 20 million US dollars, Rebecca, that's a 19.6 million dollar take, and the second biggest animated opening weekend of all time, and third biggest opening of all time, for Universal. Third place, we have Germany with 14 million, Rebecca. That also got a number of records there. Uh, yeah, the third biggest animated opening of all time and the second, again, the second biggest opening weekend of all time for Universal. China opened to 12 million, but yeah, it actually opened on a holiday in China on Wednesday, 4.7 million, biggest opening day for an animated title since the start of the pandemic. France opened on Wednesday, as films do there, and it has maintained the number one spot ever since, which is the first uh, its first time that's happened for an animated title since Frozen 2 and Toy Story 4. I mean, speaking of sequels, I'm just wondering how long it's going to take Universal to officially announce they're doing a sequel to this one, because... <laughs> 
My oh, God. they have so much potential. Sequels, spinoffs. You see how these video games have performed so well. After this performance, you have to look at this IP, the Super Mario Brothers IP, and wonder why they hadn't been able to crack the formula until now. I know, I know, in your heart, Rebecca, <laughs> that 1993 adaptation, live action adaptation with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, uh, that's always going to be part of your heart. I, but I get it, it. But, but it's that not was what the not studio this. or the creatives or the exhibitors were hoping for at all. I mean, this is just shaping up to be a juggernaut in terms of holds. You look at what this is up against next weekend, you have films like The Pope's Exorcist, which... I can't imagine there's a ton of crossover audience between uh, Russell Crowe uh, Exorcist movie and Super Mario Brothers. I mean, I, I think it's still going to keep trucking. It wasn't the only movie to come out this past weekend, though. There was Air, which I know that you were excited for. I mean, it's a sort of like, I don't know, can we say dad movie? Like it's kind of mid-range drama you, know. you need your, your dad movie starring Matt Damon to come out, you know, every couple of years and it's going to overperform. 14.4 million. It's not, I mean, that looks so small next to Super Mario Brothers, but really it's higher than what we predicted. And we already, you know, predicted that it was, you know, kind of on the higher end of what people were saying. I mean, I got to imagine that Amazon Studios who put this out along with MGM, I mean, they put a ton of money investing into theatrical. I got to imagine they're happy with this result. Yeah, the five-day weekend tally here is $20.2 million. If we look at that opening weekend, including the holiday frame here for Easter weekend, a great start for AIR. We mentioned it at last weekend's podcast, Rebecca. This was always going to be a counter-programmer to complement. It performed rather well. We still don't know, as we record this episode, who came in in second, third, and fourth place. The way we have the estimates from Sunday of, of last weekend Air came in at 14.4 for the three-day frame. Dungeons and Dragons in its second weekend ended at 14.5. And John Wick Chapter 4 came in at around 14.6. By the time you listen to this episode, you'll be able to see how these movies placed out. But now let's look forward to next weekend because I know a lot of questions will be out there on how things hold, how things perform. We are all expecting Super Mario Brothers to keep that number one spot. We'll go into everything else that's going to happen after this commercial break, because this segment is presented by our partners at Jackrow. Indeed. Yeah, Daniel, this week's news segment is brought to you by Jackrow, whose ticketing point of sale system, or Tapos, has customers singing its praises. Mark Williams of Scott Cinemas says, we have worked with Tapos for over 25 years using its ticketing and concessions point of sale, as well as online booking and card payment facilities. They've helped us navigate an ever-changing landscape and helped us as an independent cinema operator to keep our ticketing modern. We have worked closely with the development and support teams to customize the system to meet our needs, with particular focus in recent years on working towards a cloud-based office. For more information, visit www.jacro.com. And that's jackrow.com. Thank you so much for your support once again here of the Box Office Podcast. As this leads us into the weekend forecast segment of the episode. Now, we mentioned Super Mario Brothers. That's going to be the clear, far and wide number one finish. For the specific hold that we're predicting, go to boxofficepro.com to check out where we're tracking that. This is really going to evolve in the coming days and hours as we look at what Monday and Tuesday bring at the box office for the Super Mario Brothers movie. There's going to be some competition on the wide release spectrum here primarily from Universal Pictures Renfield. 
starring two Nicholas, Nikolai. Nikolai. What's, what's the Nicholas? <laughs> uh, we got Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage here in a vampire comedy. Rebecca, this is a movie that was on your radar when you started seeing advertising for it. We're expecting an opening weekend between 11 and 16 million, likely the number two movie of the weekend. Not huge numbers. Do they have to be? I'm not so sure. The one I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that comes out this weekend actually is the new film from Ari Aster, Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. That's coming out courtesy of A24. It looks like it's going to be kind of like a departure for Ari Aster, whose previous films, Midsummer and Hereditary, were both like solidly horror. So I would say Midsummer is yeah. also a comedy, but you know, that's just me. If I'm going to give anyone the benefit of the doubt, it's Ari Aster. Hereditary and Midsommar are probably two of my favorite films of all time. Midsommar in the pantheon of greatest breakup movies ever made. It's right there with Eternal Sunshine. It's right there with Annie Hall. Not that many breakup movies get breakups right the way Midsommar gets it. You're right. Boas Afraid is out in limited release, so it's not going to be the wide release from A24. They're going to start out in a couple of markets where that name, Ari Aster, carries weight behind it. In terms of different genres coming out this weekend, we also have an anime title from Crunchyroll that Suzume, I know nothing about the property or, you know, an anime or a manga on, on which it might be based. But you, you know that when there's an anime title coming out from Crunchyroll or from G-Kids or from any other distributor, you can't underestimate Oh, absolutely it. <laughs> not. And I think it's going to be really neck and neck to see who comes out on top between Susume and The Pope's Exorcist, which is a crazy thing to have said five, ten years ago, right? That an anime title would come up against a studio horror movie in April and be neck and neck on who can make more money at the box office. But these days, that's the results that we've been seeing. So it'll be interesting to see how these two combine over the weekend. Again, it's just great to see so many titles hit theaters. Yeah, Daniel, a great variety of films that hit this past weekend that we are expecting to hit this next weekend as well, both new films and holdovers. There really has been an evolution in this industry of a more diversity of titles. And, and that's looking at the demographics of you know who's making these movies, who's starring in them, the content of the movies, who they're being marketed to. I mean, we really are seeing uh, kind of a widening out of the sorts of stories that are getting told and the sorts of people who are telling them and the sorts of opportunities they're getting. I mean, that doesn't kind of perfectly sum up Chevalier, which is the subject of our feature segment this episode. It's a story of a Black composer during kind of around the era of the French Revolution. Apparently, he was like this musical genius. I Honestly, I'd never heard of the guy, but he was a real person. A lot of people haven't. And it's one of those stories that, that is really interesting to see on the big screen. It's a period piece. It looks gorgeous. A type of movie that you really want to see at a movie theater. I hope that diverse audiences come in and support this title. It's the sort of movie that I think a lot of folks keep on wanting to see at the movies. The other half of that equation is actually go buy a ticket and see it. This one's definitely worth your time. Don't wait for it to come on streaming. Support it with your pocketbook. Absolutely. And it's not a eat your vegetable sort of movie. It's really fun. Anyway, I don't want to give too much away because director Stephen Williams and screenwriter Stephanie Robinson are going to be here joining us to talk all about that movie coming out your way on April 21st, courtesy of 20th Century Studios. But before we get to that conversation, please join us for another message from our sponsor, Jack Rowe. This 
This week's feature segment is brought to you by full-service box office management provider Jackro, which has customers singing its praises. Julie and Jeff Eisentrout of Eisentrout Theater say Jackro has expertly responded to the growing digital needs of the industry and developed a product that is both logical and operator-friendly. Their support has always been timely, helpful, and reliable. Perhaps more important are the relationships we've developed. Jackro's team has always been available when needed and treat us like we're part of the family. For more information, visit www.jackro.com. That's J-A-C-R-O.com. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with director Stephen Williams and screenwriter Stephanie Robinson of 20th Century Studios' upcoming feature film Chevalier. I saw the film earlier this week. I had a great bit of fun with it. We were talking about it right before we started recording. Uh, the opening scene, I think, sets the tone for the movie uh, that we end up watching. But I want to start this conversation with the writing phase and how you even came to this project. What was it about this story that you decided to dedicate a chunk of your life to to writing a screenplay out of it and, you know, from then on being associated in the production. Sure, yeah, of course. So I heard about Chevalier de Saint-Georges when I was in high school. I'm going to say about 15 years old. I read about him and there wasn't, it was maybe a book that my mom gave me. That's a story that I keep telling everybody and I'm pretty sure that that's what started it all. And for me at the time, I think it was really important because I was, I was in the orchestra. I played the cello. And I think at that period of time to read about a black classical musician was exciting, especially from that time in that context in that period. But I think the more that I learned about him, it was less so. And obviously it's the musician part is super important, but I think it was just more about who this person was and his character. And he sort of did feel like, like it's late 1700s action figure in a way. He was a celebrity and he was suave and he knew all these languages and he was good at poetry and he wrote music and he wrote lyrics and he was an amazing athlete. So to me, he just sort of felt like this checked off all, all these insane boxes in terms of like remarkable person category. <laughs> I, I guess the way, that's the only way to say it. And to me, I think early on, I was like, this sounds like a, like a freaking movie, this guy. Everything I read about him just feels like a movie. And, you know, I was was young at the time and didn't have any way, I think, to make that possible or knew how to make that possible. But then it was one of those ideas that I think just sort of stuck in my mind when I did go on to start a professional screenwriting career. So to me at that point, and at that point, no one had still no one had made a movie about this guy. And it seems like no one even really knew who he was. So it sort of felt like the right opportunity to try to tell the story. And, and that's sort of how it started. And Stephen, from your end, how did you become aware of the script? Like, how did this get onto your radar? And what was your initial reaction engaging with this material? I think I first became aware of Chevalier, a.k.a. Joseph Bologna, when the script showed up in my inbox, you know, uh, one day and literally like after the first three pages, I was hooked and intrigued and in many ways informed because I had no idea who this person was. I didn't know that he existed. I knew nothing about him at all or the world that he, he inhabited. And, you know, Stephanie did just such an amazing job, not just in conceiving the notion of a movie that could be constructed around this person's life, but actually executing that in terms of just the brilliant screenplay that she crafted. And that was apparent 
literally from the opening scene. And so it was kind of a no brainer for me to try my damnedest to be a part of this <laughs> part of telling this story. Now, I wanted to get into the mechanics of uh, putting this movie together. Let's start talking about the structure of the story with Stephanie. As you're putting together an extraordinary life into a screenplay in a way that it can work as a film rather than a biography, right? And uh, from there on, I want to chat with Stephen about the visual style that he brought onto the project. But Stephanie, let's start with your approach condensing a lifetime into an engaging screenplay. The tone you bring to this project is extremely accessible. Can you talk about that challenge, why you wanted to bring in this tone and accessibility to a period piece like this? Yeah, of course. It's a really good question. And I think that for me, you sort of touched on it just even in your own question, right? It's sort of this idea of biography versus movie for me, like capital and movie. And that, that approach, I think, was really important to me, at least. I am not a biographer. I am not a historian. I am not interested in making a documentary. I'm not interested in writing a Wikipedia page. I'm not interested in crafting some kind of podcast where I tell you about every single thing that this person has done and in the right order in which he has done it. I write movies. I write entertainment. And that is why I do what I do. So for me, I was never, I think, at the beginning interested in trying to create something that was factually correct. I sort of resist this word biopic that has sort of been thrown around when speaking about this movie. I think that, and Stephen and I talk about this a lot, and, you know, he'll have his own perspective, too, and just sort of crafting the visual style of this movie as well. But I think it was just important for us to tell a story that was compelling and have the truth inform the spirit of the movie, even if that doesn't mean that we're sort of including what factually happened within that movie or within the movie and within how we're telling the story. And I think that, you know, our approach, I don't think, is so dissimilar from many filmmakers' approach. Like, you you watch a movie like Elvis, and <laughs> you have to assume that Elvis probably did not fire Colonel Tom Sanders in the middle of a, you know, like, scream at him, like, in a microphone in Vegas on the stage, or you watch something like Malcolm X, and, and you, you get the sense, like, after reading his biography, that Spike Lee took liberties in how he told the story in maybe a more accessible way or a way that felt dramatically sound. And I think that to me and to Stephen was always paramount to us was just how do we serve the story? And the story was the most important thing, the story that we wanted to tell and the movie that we wanted to craft was always at the forefront of our brains. But it's just in terms of that sort of like little period of his life that we do explore because he has a very rich, very long life and I feel like if we included all the sort of episodes of his incredible life, it would probably be watching like a 14-hour movie. But the thing that approached me to Joseph's narrative or really resonated with me was this idea of clearly an artist kind of struggling with his identity and his place within the society he was living in, where he came from, how he expressed where he came from, and you know, whether it's explicit or not in the history of his life, what was explicit to me sort of in between the lines about his life is that clearly a transformation did occur, right? Like you you have this character in history who is incredibly well-connected with the aristocracy, with Marie Antoinette, Versailles, and this sort of like monstrous institution, right? Monstrous just sort of in like the gravity and the weight of, you know, how influential they are. And at some point in his life, right, this, there is a shift and he actually is fighting in the revolution. He's fighting 
alongside black people, alongside slaves, he's fighting the people who he once was accepted by. And, and to me, that was sort of like the interesting thing, like th- this artist struggling to figure out who he is and like what happened, like what must have happened, given the clues that are sort of, you know, sprinkled throughout the history of his life. How can we then sort of put together a story of someone who is coming into their own self-awareness and growing up? And that part resonated with me in sort of my own struggles as an artist. And I think like it's much easier to write something that not that you know, but that you're excited by or, or, or that feels like, feels like it emotionally grabs you and pulls you in. So for me, it came from a very personal place, this sort of period in his life that I was writing about. I think related to that, obviously, as we get to Stephen here, why did you pick this script as the first one you want to tackle in a film? And the second part of that question is the visual style you wanted to bring in, because in the same way that it's a challenge for Stephanie to come in and make this story accessible and relevant for a modern audience, you have to have the same challenge visually in the mise-en-scene and production design. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I want to say in response to that question is, as you could tell from Stephanie's answer, like, this is how blessed this entire production was to have Stephanie be the center and the core of all of this, because she articulated everything perfectly to the point where I feel like my only real response needs to be ditto. (laughs) But, you know, in terms of why did I choose this to be, you know, a feature that I wanted to attach myself to, I would say that, you know, a couple of things. First off, I'm from the Caribbean myself in the same way that Joseph was. Different countries, but similar trajectory. He is far more or was far more conversant with his particular choice of art form than I am in mine, but I do my best. (laughs) And so there were many aspects of his story that I connected with intimately, like they just felt like a journey that I myself had been on. And the journey, as Stephanie, you know, alluded to earlier in her answer, of someone trying to come to a sense of self-awareness, right? A closer kind of connection to who they are, essentially. And so for me, there's lots going on with this movie. There's the music, there's the revolution, there's the time period in which it happens. But really, I am attracted to stories about people who feel like they are, they find themselves outside the world that they exist in. And they hope that through the exertion of ambition, they will make sense of that world that they feel displaced in, in relation to. And in some way, through the exertion of that ambition, come to a greater understanding of themselves and put things to right. So that was a big part of, I think, Joseph's, you know, life story and was certainly very clearly kind of demarcated in in Stephanie's script. In terms of how to make it accessible, well, what's very clear when you became very clear when I read the script and as I acquainted myself with what little there is that exists about Joseph's time and his life is how similar in many ways, what was transpiring for him in mid-1700s France could be happening today. There was something very, very contemporary about his life journey, about his circumstance, about the social context in which he found himself, and about the way in which he needed or felt he needed to be exceptional in order to make sense of his place in that world, in that world of French aristocracy in, you know, 18th century. And that became a clue as to how to approach the syntax of the movie visually, which was 
how do you keep one foot planted in the authenticity of the period in which the story is set, but at the same time render it in such a way as it feels immediate, immersive, something you can subjectively connect to and feels contemporary all at the same time. And so balancing those two tonal things and trying to find a happy place for them to coexist was really the kind of challenge that we set ourselves as a collectivity and that we tried to bring to the movie. And just one other thing I want to say, you know, is what Stephanie was talking about earlier in terms of biopic, not biopic, factual, not factual. There is a quote, which Stephanie has heard me, you know, deploy many, many times, but I, I feel like it. it's germane. And so I will impose it on, on us again comes from Tom Stoppard, and I hope I'm doing the quote justice, but I think what he said, which we all connected to and with, is facts are facts. Truth is something else entirely, and it is in fact an act of the, a product of the imagination, right? And so, just as Stephanie said, you know, like Malcolm X is a great example. There are many, many scenes that I could mention right off the top of my head that obviously did not occur in real life, and yet somehow were more true than what would have been a purely factual account of Malcolm X's life and and life journey. And there's a, there's a spiritual honesty in the film in that, whereas it doesn't have to follow this factual trajectory. I think, as Stephanie, you say, you're not trying to write a Wikipedia entry. This isn't a biography that you're going to pick up at the airport and give to your uncle, you know, in, in, in Thanksgiving. This is a, a film meant to engage an audience, meant to find a relevance, even if it's outside of that confinement of, you know, capital B biography. And I think that's best exemplified by the opening scene in the film that, for me, captures what I responded to about the film the most. It's a scene where our protagonist breaks into a concert uh, being given by Mozart. I don't want to give out too much away for our listeners. But he basically elbows himself into a context where he can perform. Elbows and pushes his way into a conversation where he can express himself. And I think... If I look at this industry at Hollywood today, it's an industry that historically has not given black people the opportunity or the same number of opportunities or the same levels of opportunities as others to have that chance. I wanted to, to address that aspect of the film and, and its possible connections to your careers and lives as artists. What did you find in your relationship with Chevalier's role in identity and artistic expression that speaks to you today? I feel... Like Stephen and I are incredibly close, I think, because of this experience and the, and the story that we did tell. But I, I feel like along the way, there was a lot of art imitating life, life imitating art. And I'm not sure if that's such a good or bad thing. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a heavy <laughs> sort of concept that you're talking about. And just, I mean, to point out that opening scene, I think that scene is sort of emblematic of the spirit of this movie, the spirit of why I think Stephen and I do what we do separately, you know, aside from this movie, what, what we've done in our careers and, and what we have done with our lives or aspired to do with our lives. I think there's something rebellious about it. There's something cheeky about it. There's something painful about it. And, and I think that that opening scene in particular, you know, does a lot of work, Stephen, like, doesn't it just, does it just yeah. feel like it does a lot of like, like emotional psychic <laughs> work in, in the way that, you know, for a lot of Chevalier's life, his legacy, like he has been referred to as the black Mozart so to actually bring him into conflict with the actual Mozart, I think was really important to us. It's clearly not based in historical fact and we are taking liberties, but the thing that did inspire that scene was an actual confrontation between 
Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. Like, that scene is completely ripped <laughs> from an alleged incident in which Clapton was playing with Cream and Hendrix was in the audience and he asked to come up and play. So that, too, I think speaks to just, like, the echoes in which these remarkable people in history, right? It's not, it doesn't just sort of end with Joseph, it's Prince, it's Hendrix, it's like all these, you know, really incredible artists and people, black artists and people who in a way have been forced to elbow their way into history and sort of actually quite literally like rip the guitar or rip the violin or rip whatever they're, whatever it is they're ripping away from a culture who maybe has a chokehold on an area of, of culture life, whatever that is. But it's sort of like a rambly answer <laughs> to get back to the, I, no, I think back to the, core, the core of the idea, which is I think that Stephen and I, and Stephen can elaborate more on this, I think mm-hmm. resonates so much with not only that scene, but this character for those reasons. And we could probably go down through a laundry list of experiences in which we maybe have felt this exact same way and, and have had to work harder and had to make more noise and have had to sort of confront the status quo, whether that's subtly or more overtly. But I feel like we've shared a lot of stories in which we have this common understanding. In many ways, I think what's so brilliant about the screenplay that Stephanie constructed is that that scene that you talk about, that opening scene, is a haiku in a way. It's a distillation of everything that the rest of the movie is about. The rest of the movie is an elaboration on what dynamics are occurring and transpiring in that opening scene. And it's true that there are specific areas in which Seth and I and many other people of color will connect to the subtextual dynamics and indeed some of the overt dynamics in that scene. But what's also true is that Hopefully, if done properly, the specific becomes universal. And I think all of us can hopefully connect to, or many people who watch the movie will connect to those circumstances in which they feel like they're not being fully seen, that their portion of the story is not being fully included, that the story that is being told to the world or being presented to the world is in fact only a partial rendering of what the real and full narrative could and should be. And so hopefully I think, you know, there are specific aspects of the story and, but there is a universality to that notion of feeling yourself to be an outsider and feeling that you are called to exert that ambition or that degree of excellence in order to make sure that you are included in part of the story in a fair and balanced way. I really responded to that. And as you guys mentioned, it's emblematic of the film as a whole. You basically yeah. draw a line in the sand in the opening scene. This is what my movie's about. If you're into it, you're going to enjoy it. If not, this might not be the film for you. We are the official magazine of the National Association of Theater Owners. Our readers, our listeners are mostly in the movie theater business. And they're always interested in finding from filmmakers on what draws them to cinema today. And I'd love to ask you guys this question because you're coming from... The golden age, arguably, the, the true golden golden age of television, of series, of serials, right? Whether it's premium cable, basic cable, or streamers, you've come out of that tradition creatively, but that doesn't mean you're completely out of touch or don't want to have a career with cinema. So I wanted to, to ask you guys, especially is there's so much buzz and excitement around everything outside of the theatrical experience, What is it about making a theatrical film that speaks to you as artists? Okay, so you talked about premium 
television golden age, I think that there are very few people working in that portion of the medium that are not inspired by movies and are not like behind closed doors. Everybody's references are, mm -hmm. you know, are, are movies. And there's a reason for that. The visual grammar of movies is so incredibly kind of globally persuasive that in many ways mirrors the experience of being a secular church. The viewing experience that happens when you're in a cinema, when you are denied distractions like your phone or going, you know, putting something in the microwave or pressing pause, all of those things contribute to, in addition to the communal experience of cinema, contributes to a really kind of deeply immersive experience that influences the way in which you think, the way in which you feel, the way in which you act in your, you know, the remainder of your lives outside the confines of the cinema. And so for me, certainly movies are the highest kind of version of visual narrative storytelling, which is not to say that I in any way look down on or denigrate you know, television as a medium or streaming as a way of consuming stories. You know, I was forged in the fire of cinema and I remain a loyal acolyte. I completely agree. I have not much add to that, Stephen. That was very well said. And I will take your answer. <laughs> but, but it's true. It, it, it is that Stephen is absolutely right. I don't think there's one piece of television that I've worked on where film hasn't been the primary inspiration for everything that we've done. And that still holds true today. It still holds, holds true to me. And the experience, the nostalgia, the way in which these stories are told, and it does feel like a sacred experience, I think, still even to this day. And it's very special to me. And Stephen was way more eloquent <laughs> about phrasing it, but I, I do completely agree. And that was director Stephen Williams and screenwriter Stephanie Robinson of 20th Century Studios' upcoming title, Chevalier, coming out on theaters on April 21st. And right before April 21st, don't forget the first episode of the Box Office Podcast's special CinemaCon edition comes out Thursday, April 20th. We're going to have a special guest retiring President and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners, John Fithian, joining us for a lengthy conversation going over the highlights of his career that's coming up in next week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. And starting April 24th, don't forget, once again, we are coming to you straight from Las Vegas with our daily CinemaCon podcast episode series subscribe to this podcast in order to get all those episodes as we release them we're looking forward to bringing that and everything else from cinemacon 2023 coming up starting next week the box office podcast is brought to you by box office pro in collaboration with the box office company and record edit podcast thank you to this week's sponsors jackrow for their support of everything we do and thank you to the audience for listening to us every weekend. New episodes come out on Thursday. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, like, and we'll see you again next week.